The sermon text for this morning is Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through 6, namely the second commandment. Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through 6, and I'm actually going to begin reading at verse 1 in order to familiarize ourselves with the context. And there we read, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children of the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. We are studying this passage this morning because you may remember when we concluded our series through Joshua last Sunday, we left off with Joshua's covenant words to Israel about worshiping God alone. He commanded them to live lives that were entirely devoted to Yahweh, to the God of Israel. He commanded them to rid themselves of any remnants that they might have had among them of idolatrous worship and to worship the one true God alone. Because, Joshua said in chapter 24, verse 9, because Yahweh is a jealous God. Now, in our society today, many people, many people are okay with the Bible uh, describing God as loving, as good, but many reject what the Bible teaches about God's jealousy. In fact, a a well-known celebrity uh, said in an interview several years ago, she said when she was asked about her faith, the church I went to had a really charismatic pastor. He had to show up early to get a seat. And I remember sitting there one Sunday while he was preaching about how the Lord thy God is a jealous God. The Lord thy God will punish you for your sins. I looked around and thought, why would God be jealous? What does that even mean? That's when I started exploring taking God out of the box, out of the pew. And eventually I got to where I was able to see God in other people and in all things, in graciousness and kindness and generosity and the spirit of things. Now, uh, notice the progression of her thinking. She saw She heard the way that God reveals himself in his word. In this case, that he is a jealous God. And and rather than seeking a a deeper understanding of that and what that means and, and seeking to conform herself to God as he has revealed himself, she chose instead to make God in her own image. See, to change God to fit what she believes God should be like. So in her mind, uh, he should be gracious and kind and generous, but certainly not jealous. 
What is she doing? She's breaking God's commandment. So understanding God's jealousy wasn't uh, just important for Israel back in Joshua's day, hundreds, thousands of years ago, but it remains important for us today because God remains the same. He does not change. And though people uh, try to make God into their own image, to change him to fit what they believe he should be like, God remains the same. He is a jealous God. And so our goal must be not to get to know him as we might think we want him to be, but to get to know him as he has revealed himself in his word. And then to worship him accordingly, according to the way that he commands us to worship him. Now to do this, uh, we are going to consider the second commandment this morning, which is our first point. And uh, this commandment is very simple. It's very straightforward. The commandment is, do not make any idols. Now the first commandment is against worshiping the wrong God. The second commandment is against worshiping God in the wrong way. Worshiping in, in a way that he hasn't taught or permitted in his word. It's actually a very simple command. No idols. And when we think about an idol, what was an idol? An idol was uh, something that was man-made, that is man-made. Something that in the ancient world in Joshua's day was carved or, or formed to represent a divine being. Now, this is what God prohibited in the second commandment. It's important to note here that this doesn't mean that uh, God is against craftsmanship, uh, that he's against art, against beauty, against us creating things using the imagination that he has blessed us with. In fact, uh, when we read about the building of the tabernacle, um, we read in Exodus chapter 31 that God sent the Israelites his Holy Spirit in order uh, to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze, uh, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, and to engage in all kinds of craftsmanship. See, so uh, what God commands in the second commandment is not um, the, the prohibition against making things using our imagination, but making things to serve as objects of worship. That is the express prohibition. This is clarified in the second part of the commandment. Uh, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, which means you shall not worship them. Now, this commandment is clarified with the list of the kinds of idols that God forbids. God says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. See, that really sums up everything, doesn't it? Nothing in the sky, nothing on the ground, nothing in the sea. In other words, the Israelites were not allowed to represent God in any form of anything in all of creation. Why did God give his people this commandment? Well, because he knows he knows that our hearts are idol factories, as uh, John Calvin said during the Reformation. He knows that our uh, tendency, because of our sinful nature, is to make idols so that we might worship them. And not just one idol, 
but to turn out idol after idol like a factory would. And in fact, the Old Testament is full of examples of God's people uh, using man-made things and, and bowing down to them in worship. It's not just in one instance. It's actually throughout the Old Testament. Perhaps the best-known incident is uh, in the golden calf that Israel made in the wilderness. Can you remember the incident, I'm sure, from your Bible reading? Moses was up on Mount Sinai. He was there meeting with God, and he left the Israelites alone for 40 days and 40 nights on the base of the mountain. And as they awaited for Moses to return, we read that they uh, became impatient with him. And we begin reading in Exodus 32 about what happened. When the people saw that uh, Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up! Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now it's important we think about that incident to see here that the Israelites weren't worshiping a different god. They weren't worshiping Baal or one of the other gods in the surrounding nations. The problem was that they were worshiping God in the wrong way. And this very same thing happened later in Israel's history when we read about one of the kings of Israel, Jeroboam, he actually set up two golden calves, which are statues of bulls, in cities outside of Jerusalem. And he did that because he wanted to eliminate the people's need to uh, go to the temple to worship God. And so he had these two statues made, and he said to the people, uh, Here are your gods, O Israel, which brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now, this was exactly, if you listen, exactly the same language that the Israelites used in the wilderness. See, and while Israel intended the images and, and the idols to merely represent God, these idols quickly became the objects of worship. Those images of, of God, of Yahweh, inevitably became other gods. No longer just a representation, but other gods, which led to Israel breaking the first commandment. And this leads us to exploring the reasons behind why God gave the people this commandment, not worshiping idols. It's our second point this morning. And Kevin DeYoung, he's a PCA pastor. He wrote a book on the Ten Commandments. And He's helpful here as he, he provides five reasons why God forbids images and anything else to represent him in our worship. 
The first reason is that a God is free. God is free. Once we have uh, something to represent God, or uh, to represent God in our worship as if it were uh, God himself, uh, we actually undermine God's freedom. We start to think that we can bring God with us by carrying around a statue or uh, some kind of trinkets. We start thinking that uh, we can manage God with the right rituals, or we think he'll be our friend if we simply pray in a certain direction or, or make an offering before an image or an icon. You know, any time we make something in order to see God or something that stands for God, we're undermining God's freedom because the Bible teaches us that God is a spirit and he doesn't have a body like men. And so it's not our place, and it's expressly forbidden in Scripture for us to make the invisible God into a visible form. Secondly, God forbids images and anything else to represent him in worship because believing sight comes by sound. Believing sight comes by sound. And that might sound kind of contradictory. But let's think about it. In the Bible, especially on this side of glory, we see by hearing. We get to know God by hearing. We gain spiritual understanding as we hear God's word. The book of Deuteronomy, Israel's experience, as it records Israel's experience at Mount Sinai, records the fact that God didn't take on a form of something within his creation when he revealed himself to Israel there on Mount Sinai. In fact, when the Lord appeared to his people, Moses reminded them in Deuteronomy chapter 4 as he was recalling the, what happened in the book of Exodus, Moses said to the people, you heard the sound of words. You heard God speak, but you saw no form. You only heard his voice. And so thinking about that, loved ones, we, we should make no apologies for being uh, word-centered as, as reformed Christians. You know, the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, he says that faith comes by hearing. And hearing comes by the word of God, especially as it is preached in the context of worship. This is how God has designed worship, and this is how God desires worship to be made to him. In his infinite wisdom, this is what he has established. And so Christian worship is meant to be wordy, not to be uh, very visual, not to be expressly uh, this breathtaking display of images and icons. Instead, God has given us some visual helps for worship. He's given us the sacrament. He's given us baptism, which is a picture of our being washed with Christ's blood and regenerated by the Holy Spirit. He's given us the Lord's Supper, which is a sacrament that also engages all of our five senses. It's tangible. It's, it's visual. We hear the wine being poured. We see the bread being broken. In this way, God does engage our senses. But loved ones, these are the means that God has established for our worship. These are the boundaries that he has set. 
if he wanted us to explore outside of these boundaries, to worship him in, in some other way, he would have given us a different commandment. See, but as it is, he has revealed what pleases him, what he desires, and we need to conform ourselves to what he desires. See, not to think that what we think would be better is the way that we should uh, worship him. Thirdly, uh, God forbids images and anything else to represent him in worship because uh, God provides his own mediators. God provides his own mediators. At their best, um, God's people have used images and icons not because they thought God could be housed in, uh, they might say, a marble statue or a painted picture, but in order to provide more intimate access to God. So God's people throughout the ages have erred because they've thought that um, if God is in heaven, well, it makes sense then that we would want a physical portal, a physical way for us to be able to connect with him here on earth. But loved ones, God's people should know better. We should know better. Israel did not need to make idols for this purpose because God had already given them mediators. He had given them prophets, priests, and kings. This was the way that he had ordained to draw near to his people to connect with them. It was through these specific mediators. The prophets, we know, spoke from God to the people. The priests brought the people's needs up to God. The kings ruled over God's people with his authority. See, all of these mediators, we know, merely pointed forward to Christ, the true prophet, priest, and king. And so when the New Testament speaks about the Lord Jesus, it speaks about Jesus as the image of the invisible God, the ultimate revelation of who God is. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 says it expressly, Christ is the image of the invisible God. He represents everything that God is and who God is. So that Jesus could say to his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And the book of Hebrews, picking up on this, says in chapter 1, verse 3, Christ is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And so we must look to him and him alone as he is revealed in his word. And the Bible says as we look to Christ, as he is revealed in his word, we will be saved. And fourthly, um, we don't need to create images of God because we read that he has already created images. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 27, we read that God created man and woman in his image and likeness. So you and I, you and I are divinely chosen statues meant to show what God is like. And when we commit idolatry, idolatry actually diminishes God, and it also diminishes us. Kevin DeYoung explains, we look at Ezekiel chapter 18, and verses 11 through 13, right in the middle of a list of Israel's sins against one another, 
sins like adultery and charging interest to fellow Israelites, which was, we know, forbidden by God. Right in the middle of this list of, of, is mentioned the, the sin of idolatry. Why? Well, because mistreating other people and worshiping idols have the same root. It's a violation of the divine image. So in one case, we're looking for God's image where it doesn't exist. That's idolatry. And in the other case, we are ignoring God's image where it is, exists by, by sinning against our neighbor. We are God's statues in the world. And though God's image in us, we know, is marred because of the fall into sin, it remains his image and likeness, as God expressly told Noah after the flood. And so God does not need our help in making more images. He asks for our witness instead. He calls us to be salt and light in the world as we uh, live for Christ here on earth. And fifth and last, and you know, this point is made very clear in the second commandment, uh, God forbids images and anything else to represent him in worship because God is jealous. God is, is jealous. And God's jealousy, it has to do with his love for us, his love for you and me as his covenant people. He says, you shall not make for yourself an idol, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now, to use a, a more perhaps positive and perhaps even a more accurate word, it is because of his zeal, because of the burning passion of his love that he commands us not to make images. And one theologian explains it this way. He says, jealousy doesn't get much positive publicity these days. When people talk about it, they generally mean something more like envy, the desire to get something that does not belong to you. However, when something really does belong to you, when it's actually yours, you know, there are times when it needs to be protected, right? And, and a holy jealousy is one that guards someone's rightful possession, something that's yours. The most obvious example is an example that is used throughout the Bible is the love between a husband and a wife. Now, no husband who truly loves his wife could possibly endure seeing her in the arms of another man. If he truly loved her, it would make him intensely jealous, and rightly so. Well, God, we read in Scripture, feels the same way about his people. His commitment to us is complete. It is entire. His love, we read, is exclusive. It is passionate. It is intense. It is jealous. So godly jealousy, we need to understand, loved ones, is not insecure, it's not insane, it's not possessive human jealousy, it's not the kind of jealousy that we think when we think about fallen human beings. Rather, it's an intensely caring devotion that God has toward the objects of his love, toward his people. It's like a mother's jealous protection of her children, a father's jealous protection of his home. And so you see, if this is what 
jealousy means, then God has to be jealous. He loves us too much not to be jealous for us, for you and for me. In fact, his jealousy is one of his divine perfections. It's a perfection of God. One Old Testament scholar, Christopher Wright, he explains, a God who was not jealous would be as despicable as a husband who didn't care whether or not his wife was faithful to him. And part of our problem with this profound covenantal reality is that we have come to regard religion like everything else in life, as a, a matter of consumer choice. And as consumers, we resent monopolies, right? We want to pick what we want. We want there to be options and variation and choice. But Wright says, the one true God makes necessarily exclusive claims. The one true God has the right to a monopoly on our love. Jealousy is God's love protecting itself. And what God then is so jealously protecting in the second commandment is the honor of his love. The fact that God not only loves us, but he also wants us to love him in return. That, among other things, this means Worshiping him in a way that is worthy of his honor. Worshiping in a way that he has instructed in his word. See, God has the right to tell us how he wants to be worshipped. And he has commanded us not to spurn his love by turning him into an idol. Into something made by human hands. Into something that is a mere creation. He is no creation. He is the creator God. And so this is why, loved ones, this is why rather than, than thinking God's jealousy is a negative attribute, it's far from it. See, this is why thinking that it reveals something wrong with God, we must instead, instead see that it reveals the intensity of his love for us. It reveals the fact that he is passionate for you and for me. And so his jealousy is a good greater than you and I can ever imagine. He desires everything. He desires everything that we are, everything that we have. He desires our whole beings for himself, for himself alone. And this is why the Westminster Shorter Catechism begins with a very well-known question, right? a very well-known question of what is the chief end of man? Or what is, what is man's primary purpose. Why do we exist? And the answer, the answer is that our chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Now, some might ask, as we noted at the opening of the sermon, is it fair? Is it, is it right for God to command such exclusive worship and devotion? Isn't it selfish of him to command such a thing? Well, in his book, um, None greater. It's actually a quote that I emailed out and that is in the bulletin this morning. Matthew Barrett provides a very helpful clarification on this. He says, It would be selfish if God were not the most glorious being there is, if he were not someone than whom none greater can be conceived. But since he is the most glorious being there is, 
to point us to something or someone else instead would actually be the most selfish thing he could do. If he is the most perfect, supreme, glorious being, then he is where the greatest joy in life is to be found. If God did not draw attention to himself as the supreme being, then we would not experience the greatest joy there is in life. And so as it turns out, God's commanding that he receive all glory is the most caring, loving thing he could ever do for us. Because only then will we find ourselves truly satisfied in life. Let us now consider the fulfillment of God's jealousy. Since God's jealousy is, as we've noted, a revelation of his intensity, his in the intensity of his love for us, it must become, loved ones, one of the sources of comfort and assurance for us. Just as we think about God's omnipotence and God's omnipresence as sources of comfort, we must think about God's jealousy in the same way. We must never try to uh, change God and make him into what we think he should be, but instead to bow in reverence to who he is as he has revealed himself in his word. Because this theme of, of God's intense and God's intimate love for us as, as a husband loves his wife or as a father loves his child, this intensity and this relationship these pictures are woven throughout the Bible. And just like when we see the people that we love, as we see them perhaps heading toward disaster or heading toward a, a direction that we know will ultimately hurt, hurt them, the intensity by which we intervene actually reveals the intensity of our love for them. Let's think about that for a few minutes. You know, if you see a stranger in trouble, you might help them to a degree. You might seek to do as much as, as you possibly can. But, you know, if you see a loved one, your wife, your, your child, your husband, your parents, if you see them in, in trouble, actually the intensity with which you pour yourself out to help is even greater. Why? of the relationship that you already have with that person. And so, loved ones, what, what can we point to in God that reveals his jealous love for us, his intense love for us? What is it that we can point to? It's the cross. Jesus said in John chapter 3, 16, a very well-known verse, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And you know, this is one of those verses that we have memorized, and we can just sometimes rattle off without really thinking about what Jesus is getting at as he is explaining his purpose for coming into the world. Because as we think about John 3.16, the way it begins, for God so loved the world, that word so is very, very important. The word there, by reason of what comes after it, it actually reveals two very important things. It, it reveals first the infinite degree of God's love for us. Jesus says that he so loved us that he sent, or God uh, loved us that he sent Jesus 
to pay the penalty for our sins and thereby to ensure that we might be with him in glory. The word so reveals the infinite degree of his love and the word so, secondly, also reveals the glorious manner of how God intervened to save us. See, not just the degree of his love, but also what he was willing to do to save us from our sins. He so loved his people that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And so the Apostle Paul he later writes, when speaking about God's love for us in Christ, the Apostle Paul is thinking about this wonderful imagery of God's jealous love for his people. He picks up again the imagery of the marriage relationship between a husband and a wife, and he says in Ephesians chapter 5, beginning of verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Loved ones, knowing that we are so intensely loved by God, you know, our call is to respond with that same kind of jealousy for his glory. Our call in scripture is to seek to have a sincere and pure devotion to Christ, to have a godly jealousy for knowing him and for making him known as he has commanded us in his word. Amen. Let us pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for loving us in Christ. That though we do not deserve such love, yet you chose us before the foundation of the world. You set your heart upon us. And we thank you also for revealing the intensity of your love for us in the cross and in your jealous love for us by sending Christ to die. Grant us, we pray, understanding into this deep and lovely mystery and help us to love you with the same intensity and purity. And now, Lord, having been saved by grace, help us, we pray, to do all things, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do for your glory. Bless our work, our attitude, our thoughts, and our words, and sanctify them for your use and your glory in this world. Not to us, O oh Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Amen.